Hello everyone, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. Today is the 9th of October 2014, and it is my privilege to welcome to the programme Dr. Graham McQueen. Dr. McQueen holds a PhD in Buddhist studies from Harvard University. He taught for 30 years in the Department of Religious Studies at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, where he was founding director in 1989 of McMaster's Center for Peace Studies. He has co-directed projects in four war zones and written articles and contributed to several books in peace research. He's also written several peer-reviewed articles on 9-11 anomalies, served on the steering committee of the Toronto hearings in to 9-11, is a member of the Consensus 9-11 panel, and is co-editor with Kevin Ryan of the Journal of 9-11 Studies. Dr. McQueen, thank you very much indeed for joining us on The Mind Renewed. Well, thank you for having me, Julian. My pleasure. Now, we're going to be talking today about your new book, The 2001 Anthrax Deception, The Case for a Domestic Conspiracy, which takes a critical look at the events and the circumstances surrounding the so-called anthrax attacks of 2001 in the US a little bit after 9-11. And it examines them from the vantage point of 13 years of hindsight in a way that I think is very revealing, actually. And um, I would go so far as to say dismantles the official explanation of those attacks and provides further erosion of the official 9-11 narrative as well. And uh, for anyone who's not read it yet, let me say that uh, although it is clearly an academic work with uh, all the the rigor and the footnotes and the references that one might expect of that, it's nevertheless very, very readable. And indeed, I think it's a a compelling read, a bit like a a crime novel, I thought, in some ways. So if you haven't read it yet, after you've listened to this interview, please do go and get a copy and read it, because I I would say that uh, it's very revelatory in many ways. So that's the subject of our conversation. Let me start, Dr. McQueen, by asking you about your background, if I may, um, in peace studies and uh, what part that may have played in the kind of work that you're doing now. Could you give us an idea of what peace studies actually is as an academic discipline and um, how you got into that area of research? Yes, uh, I'll do my best. Well, peace studies and peace research really began in the 1950s. Um, A few individuals like Johann Galtung, Scandinavian, and subsequently a number of people were involved in, including people from Britain, such as Adam Curl. Programs were established around the world. Um, University of Bradford was one of the strongest in England. There's no officially generally accepted definition of peace studies, but it obviously has to do with war and peace. Some would say more generally violence and peace. Some people say, well, it has to do with the causes of war and the conditions for peace, which is not bad, except that implies a rather conventional view of what war is. And I think one of the contributions of some of the greatest peace studies intellectuals has been to formulate a quite different view of what war is. War is not an event. War is a system. And that has many many uh, implications, and it even has implications for the work I do in studying 9-11 and anthrax. But in any case, what you need to know is that, as often happens in history, uh, initiatives for peace often flourish at the very times when uh, war is breaking out here and there. And that's because people react against war, and they're disgusted by it, and they try and think of alternatives. This has happened repeatedly in history. 
So, for example, the uh, U.S. involvement in Vietnam in the 1960s led to quite a few developments in peace studies in the United States as a reaction to that. We, don't, we shouldn't be doing this. This is wrong. This is, doesn't make sense intellectually. It's certainly not worthy of us morally. What could we do that would be an alternative to that? And so on. And as the Cold War went on, people began to worry about nuclear annihilation. Again, people said, this is absurd. Um, we need to do something about this. Universities aren't challenging conventional thinking nearly enough. They can't leave this to international relations experts and diplomats. We need new methods, new thinking, uh, new institutions. And uh, this led to a flowering of programs internationally. And I, I call it a flowering, even though <laughs> those who've been involved in establishing and maintaining those programs may not react to that metaphor very well, because it's often more like rolling a stone up a hill. In other words, you, you often don't get a lot of support, either from the institution itself, the universities, or from governments. Um, you know, Thatcher government went after the University of Bradford program. Because, of course, these programs, if they're going to be worth anything at all, they have to be willing to criticize governments and criticize the military-industrial complex, criticize corporations that make money out of war. And therefore, the, the odds that they're going to get a wonderfully huge grant you know, <laughs> are, yes. are very slim. Absolutely, yeah. And you say that the research is not looking at war as an event, but is, is that looking at the whole uh, set of conditions and circumstances and processes that go to lead to war? Yes. Well, um, first of all, I don't want to pretend to speak for all of peace studies. Like any discipline, especially that's still in the early stages of developing its own concepts, there's lots of dissent and disagreement. So there's no one view on this. Mm. I'm just saying that for me, one of the greatest insights um, in thinking about peace is to approach war as an institution. Forget about events. Forget about you know, oh, well, the war broke out here, or what is the cause of war? Think rather that war is an enduring, but theoretically dispensable institution that human beings resort to. And it's, it's institutionalized, it's solidified internationally through what we call the military-industrial complex and through certain cultural views. But it isn't eternal, it's not necessary, it's not essential to human beings, and it may be that it's time we reined it in. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you what it was that made you start questioning 9-11 itself? Yes. My answer could go on far too long, so I'm going to try and give you a short version. I was certainly not convinced when the event first happened that it had been done by so-called Al-Qaeda. But that doesn't mean I was brilliantly uh, seeing through the event. Um, it just simply means I was waiting for evidence that they had done it. And I assumed that would eventually be provided to us. And I was pretty skeptical initially, but I kind of fell asleep. And I think a lot of people did this. After a while, we, we, we sort of thought, oh, well, I guess they must have done it. I mean, everybody seems to accept that. And so, gee whiz, even though I haven't actually seen the evidence myself, must be true. And I had a period of what I think of as my dogmatic slumber then, <laughs> from late 2001 till about 2005. And I became aware during that period that there were people that questioned the event, and I certainly never ridiculed them or, or excluded that possibility. But I was too busy, I felt, with other things to look into it properly. I was busy trying to stop an invasion of Afghanistan initially, then I was busy trying to stop an invasion of Iraq. Naturally, I failed in all those things. 
And eventually in 2005, I was challenged by somebody who said to me, you haven't looked into this. You don't realize 9-11 was a fraud because you don't know anything about it. And I realized that he was right. Sometimes it's good to be challenged. And so I did look into it. And in late 2005, I began to clear my desk of other, of other materials and decide to figure out what was going on. And I decided rather rapidly that this appears to have been a fraudulent event. The, it doesn't hold together at all. And by 2006, I was doing my own research in primary sources and publishing an article and, and so on. And the more research I did, and this has continued to the present day, the more I became convinced that this is not simply an event about which we should have questions. This is not merely a government account that has problems or a few difficulties. This was one of those perhaps rare cases in history when we could actually say the official story of 9-11 is wrong and we can prove it. We can prove it. And, you know, that's the position I eventually reached. And certainly your book contributes to that conclusion, uh, very definitely. And uh, we're going to delve into some of the detail of this book, I hope, in, in just a moment. But I think probably we need to have a short recap on the events of the anthrax attacks, because, I mean, the media has pretty much shelved this whole business, you know, as, as if it's, uh, as we say here in the UK, it's all done and dusted, you know. <laughs> um, right. And, and I, I suspect that our sort of collective memory of those days is pretty hazy anyway, I mean, especially here in the UK. So could you give us a kind of recap on the main events of those attacks and, you know, perhaps uh, just a flavor of how they were portrayed by the media at the time? Yes. Uh, when I first began looking into the anthrax attacks a few years ago, I didn't remember much about them either, by the way. They weren't a huge deal in Canada, though probably even less in the UK. But I did remember that shortly after 9-11, there was the scare spores of this bacteria called anthrax were put into envelopes and sent around through the mail. And I thought, well, let's look into that. So basically what happened is that approximately one week after the 9-11 attacks, somebody, individual or group, and in my view, a group, put uh, spores of the bacteria, anthrax, which causes the disease that we also call anthrax, put them into envelopes and sent them around. And the first wave went mainly to news agencies. And there were also notes, written notes included in those envelopes, rather crude threats. By late September, people were beginning to get ill at various of these news agencies, but it wasn't initially diagnosed as anthrax. And it took a while. It was not diagnosed until October 3rd when a man in Florida by, by the name of Robert Stevens was kind of officially diagnosed as having pulmonary anthrax, which is the most deadly form. It's what, it's what you get when you breathe it in. He died two days later, October 5th. The anthrax scare then as an official kind of event that happened after his death lasted from about October 5th till well into November. And during that period, there was a series of deaths, not a lot of deaths, certainly not compared to 9-11, but five people died of anthrax and about 22 are generally said to have become ill from it. Some people think that's an underestimate and that it was as high as 50 or so. 
And some of the people that got ill simply had a few symptoms and got over it and went back to normal, but not all did. Sometimes anthrax can leave you permanently disabled. So, um, you know, it was pretty serious stuff. And what people have to realize is that while these anthrax attacks were happening and while the American population was increasingly coming to think this was um, the second blow, you know, that there was a one-two punch struck at America, so to speak. 9-11 was the first blow, anthrax was the second blow, same perpetrator, oh my God, more terrorism, that was the view. But while that was happening, a, a number of other really, really important things were happening in the United States. Um, the bombing of Afghanistan began just a couple of days after the first anthrax death. Preparations, which were now quite overt and public, for attacking Iraq began. The USA Patriot Act, which is an act that really ate into the civil rights of Americans in a serious way. The Patriot Act was passed during the anthrax attacks, and there are all sorts of direct connections between the two. You might say Congress was frightened into passing the Patriot Act, in part by the anthrax attacks. And the NSA began its infamous mass spying on the U.S. population during the early part of this period as well. So, yeah, yeah a lot of important things are happening while these anthrax attacks are happening. Is it right that two senators were targeted at this time, two Democratic senators, Tom Daschle and Patrick Leahy? And right. was that done, do you feel, in order to persuade them to come on board with the Patriot Act? Yes, they were attacked. And yes, that's why it was done. I'm quite certain they were part of what we might call the second wave of anthrax letters. And the preparation of anthrax spores used in this case was even more refined, more lethal than in the first wave. So figuring out what the meaning of the anthrax attacks might be requires looking at the intimidation of Congress and specifically at the letters sent to those two senators. But they weren't, I understand from your book, they weren't actually against the Patriot Act, but they were sort of dragging their heels on the issue. That's right. Uh, in fact, when I first began exploring the anthrax letters sent to these two senators, I thought, Gosh, you know, the, the common view that, that they were sent these letters to help get the Patriot Act passed doesn't seem to work because they're not really putting up much resistance to the Patriot Act. They're two very prominent, they're actually crucial Democratic senators. And by crucial, I mean, if they didn't agree with the Patriot Act, it wouldn't have gone through. So, I mean, in that sense, they are in a crucial position. But when I looked at their views, I thought, they had been successfully intimidated by the 9-11 attacks. They had come around to thinking that the Patriot Act was necessary. They had agreed to work with the government to get it passed. So initially I thought, gosh, you know, I, I don't think the anthrax letters could have been sent to them for that reason. But the more I looked into it, the more I realized that, uh, yeah, I think, I think they were sent in order to be intimidated. And that is because although they in general approved of the Patriot Act and wanted to work to get it through, they were slowing things down. And there's a particular event on October 2nd when they really put down their feet and said, you know, this isn't working for us. Um, you know, you're going to have to give way a little bit. And it's at that point that, they, <laughs> that the anthrax letters were sent to them. 
Mm. So this was all part of that creating a climate of fear, I mean, generally in the, in the population as well, to get support for the Patriot Act and, as you say, for the NSA to start collecting on everybody. That's correct. And as I say in the book, uh, there were many references in the mass media as the anthrax attacks began to anxiety and fear and panic and all these terms being used again and again and again to describe the state of mind of the U.S. population as these anthrax attacks proceeded. And there were similar references to the state of mind of Congress. In my view, the causing the panic was part of the operation, but also talking about it a lot through the mass media was part of the operation. I mean, I, I do think the mass media were permitted themselves to be used shamelessly in this operation. And spreading fear was part of their job, and they did that. You mentioned that the two senators were attacked with a very refined form of anthrax. Now, this is sometimes referred to, I believe, as weaponized anthrax. Could you tell us what that is? Right. Well, again, we won't find everybody agreeing on the definition of weaponize. Uh, the FBI eventually takes the position that the anthrax was not weaponized, that none of the anthrax used in the attacks was weaponized. Um, in my view, that's clearly false, even if you accept their definition of weaponized. But I don't accept their definition. They, they try to make it a very, very special kind of technical definition. Basically, to weaponize anything is to, to prepare it in such a way that it's a weapon, to make it a more effective weapon. That's the only thing that weaponize really means. So if you wanted to weaponize anthrax, what we're talking about is this is a natural occurring uh, bacterium. You know, in other words, it's found in nature. It's common among herbivores, especially it's parasitic. It can cause disease and death. But if you want to make it an effective weapon, if, if one group of human beings wants to use it as a weapon against another group of human beings, they can't rely upon natural anthrax. It's not going to do the job well enough. So it's been known for years that you need to prepare it in special ways. You want to um, prevent some of the things that tend to happen in nature. For example, in nature, anthrax spores, and the spore is the dormant form of the, of the bacteria. Typically bacteria, I shouldn't say all bacteria, but a common thing is that bacteria may form this, an endospore when nutrients are scarce, for example. And it, it, you might say it sleeps in this condition, which is typically a very durable form of the bacterium, and then it will awaken again when nutrients are provided. And this is really what happens with anthrax, so that if you breathe it in, if you breathe in one of these endospores, it gets in your lungs, finds itself in a, in a perfect environment, it awakens, you put that in quotation marks, turns into a more active form and does its lethal job. So if you want to make it into a weapon, one of the things you would do is prevent the clumping that tends to happen in, in nature. See, anthrax is really um, at its most lethal when it's breathed in. You can get cutaneous anthrax through, uh, through the skin if you have an open wound. You can get an, an intestinal form if you eat, let's say, meat infected with it. But by far the most dangerous form, and therefore the form that human beings are going to use when they weaponize anthrax, is pulmonary or inhalation anthrax, where you breathe it in. That's deadly. 
uh, about 90% of the people that get inhalation anthrax will die from it. So it's very lethal, and people who like thinking up exotic weapons are going to go, wow, look at that, look at how lethal it is. But they're also going to say, you know what, in nature, the spores kind of clump together, and that means they don't they don't float around as well as they should. What we want is a beautiful aerosol. We want something where all these tiny little anthrax spores are floating around in a cloud almost like smoke. So if, if somebody opens a letter in a building, wow, it just floats off. It floats right out of the letter and contaminates the whole building. And that's exactly what happened, by the way, when Tom Daschle's secretary opened the letter uh, on October 15th in the Hart Senate building. It was like smoke. Mm -hmm. It came out of the envelope and floated around, contaminated the whole building, partly because it got on people's clothing, they tracked it around, and so on, got in the air ducts. The whole building had to close down for months and cleaned out. And imagine that, just from a tiny little bit of anthrax in an envelope. So how do you solve that? Well, one of the ways you solve this is to coat the anthrax spores. First of all, you want to produce a very fine and even product so that there's not much refuse and you have all these tiny little spores, roughly the same size, and you want them in just the right size to enter through the nasal passages and to become lodged in the lungs. If they're too big, they'll get caught in the nasal passages. If they're too small, they'll be breathed right out again. So you've got the right size, you've got all the uniformity, and then you coat the anthrax spores with a substance which turns the anthrax into an aerosol. It, it gets rid of this tendency towards static clumping. And the point is that we have very strong evidence that all those things were done to the anthrax used in the anthrax attacks, and especially in the, in the letters to the senators. So when I say it was weaponized, I say it had had several things done to it to change it from the natural form of anthrax to a very lethal form of anthrax that could be used as a weapon. That's what we mean. Yeah. And actually, the sophistication of that material turns out to be an essential component in your argument, actually. And no doubt we will come back to that in a few minutes. Um, let's turn to the main arguments of your book. Now, in Chapter 1, you give a list of statements that you're going to argue for throughout the rest of the book. And uh, you do make it quite clear that you're you're not presenting a comprehensive account or comprehensive analysis mm -hmm. of the attacks. You are just alerting us to key pieces of evidence that support the uh, following propositions. And I'm going to I'm going to paraphrase this list, if I may. Sure. Then, then we can go from there. So you say a the anthrax attacks were carried out by a group of people, not a lone wolf. B this group of criminals included deep insiders within the US executive branch. C these people were linked to or indeed identical with the perpetrators of the 9/11 attacks. D the anthrax attacks were the result of a conspiracy aimed at redefining the enemy of the west away from the cold war paradigm towards the global war on terror and E, this global war on terror paradigm has enabled the U.S. executive branch to reduce civil liberties in the U.S., to attack other nations, and to weaken the rule of law, both domestically and internationally. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what I want to do is to look at your first two points, that this was a group of people, not a lone wolf, 
and that this group involved U.S. government insiders. This is the contention here. Now, in reaching these conclusions, you lay out four, I think, very helpful quadrants, you call them, in the text. And in these quadrants, you have various hypotheses, perpetrator hypotheses, you call them. So you have quadrant one, you have, um, it could have been a foreign individual. Quadrant two, it could have been a foreign group. Quadrant three, could have been a domestic individual. Quadrant four, could have been a domestic group. And you track the history of how the officially preferred hypothesis, which was a foreign group, gradually shifted along to become a domestic individual as the difficulties arose for the explanation. So could you basically sort of talk us through how and why that shift happened from the foreign group preferred hypothesis through to the domestic individual one? I'll do my best. All right. So all the options were basically on the table when anthrax was first discovered. That is to say, when it first became clear that anthrax was in play, Uh, On October 3rd, 2001, Mm. people began brainstorming, you know, what is this? Is this a a lone perpetrator, some eccentric or insane individual in the United States? Is it somebody from abroad? You know, is it connected to the 9-11 attacks? And so on. But pretty rapidly, the number one hypothesis in terms of popularity in the United States became the hypothesis that it was done by the same group or a group connected to the perpetrators of the 9-11 attacks, you know, same people or similar people. And we know this because a survey was done in mid-October, and it showed that over 60% of the U.S. population thought that al-Qaeda was involved in some way. So that was the most successful hypothesis. But Another hypothesis was meanwhile making its way around, and that is that Iraq was responsible for the anthrax. And there were lots of reasons why people would choose Iraq. After all, who's Al-Qaeda? A small, poorly funded group with, you know, caves and crude training camps in Afghanistan. And there's no evidence that they had ever produced anthrax, and especially they couldn't have come up with a kind of sophisticated product such as seemed to be going the rounds. Iraq, on the other hand, had had an anthrax program at one point in the past, and this was known. And a state, of course, has laboratories and production facilities and finances that a little group like al-Qaeda is not going to have. So the idea came around that, well, we don't like Iraq, and we've been worried about their mass weapons of mass destruction for some time. Maybe this has got their fingerprints. And by mid-October, a slightly more sophisticated hypothesis came about, which is to say that they were both involved. And this is the hypothesis I call the double perpetrator hypothesis. According to this, the anthrax came from Iraq, but Iraq provided it to al-Qaeda, and al-Qaeda then acted as the foot soldiers, the people on the ground who took the stuff, put it in the envelopes, wrote the little notes, and sent it off. So that hypothesis went from strength to strength in October of 2001, and it, it was uh, strong and uh, believed by quite a few people long enough to help the Patriot Act go through. And the Patriot Act was signed into law by George Bush on October 26th. What kind of justification was offered for linking Iraq to al-Qaeda, apart from what you've already said? Well, linking Iraq to al-Qaeda was one of the major projects of 
what I would broadly say the neoconservatives in the United States, there was a group that had been wanting to get Iraq for years. Wolfowitz was an example of somebody in that camp. James Woolsey, former uh, head of the CIA, was another. These people had been angry, actually, that Bush Sr. had not gone in and finished the job in Iraq and thrown out Saddam Hussein and put in somebody they liked. They had never ceased campaigning to get rid of Iraq, and they had looked for every opportunity. And one of the arguments they were making was that Iraq and al-Qaeda were connected. So if this terrible al-Qaeda has done 9-11 attacks and, and it's connected to Iraq, wow, we've got to go after Iraq. They gave us various stories, Julian. So there was a story that the head of the hijackers, Mohammed Atta, had met with an Iraqi diplomat in Prague, okay? That was an example. And there were other stories of this kind, some of which supposedly came from Iraqi um, dissidents and uh, expatriates. And to make a long story short, it was all baloney. Iraq did not support al-Qaeda. They had very different ideologies, very different views of the world. They didn't work together, and the CIA knew they didn't work together. So did British intelligence, by the way. We know this from the Downing Street memo. It was well known in the intelligence community that they didn't work together. But that didn't prevent the proponents of this double perpetrator thing from trying over an extended period to claim that they were working together. This was one of several stories that uh, fell apart. It doesn't seem extremely likely to me that Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden would have been the best of mates. but uh... <laughs> They weren't working together. <laughs> no. No, they weren't. They definitely weren't. Do you think the thing that really sold this uh, connection to 9-11 to the general population were the notes that appeared with uh, some of these attacks? I mean, I've got one just in, in front of me here where it has at the top, 9-11-01, you cannot stop us, we have this anthrax, you die now, are you afraid? Death to America, death to Israel, Allah is great. Do you think those were the, the things that really uh, made people believe that this was an Al-Qaeda connection here? Well, sure. I mean, that was that was part of it. The Al-Qaeda hypothesis was already making the rounds before the text of the letters was discovered. But there's no doubt that the letters, briefly at least, helped to implicate Al-Qaeda. I mean, there there it is, 9-11, the date, given right at the top of each one of these letters. And yeah. then, as you say, this kind of crude, almost Hollywood caricature of an Islamic extremist, yeah. death to this, death to that, obviously made to look like al-Qaeda. So yes, that had an effect. That helped frame al-Qaeda. And meanwhile, the framing of Iraq was going on in, in a somewhat separate way. So, for example, at the end of October, uh, ABC News claimed that experts had discovered a substance in the anthrax, that is, coating the anthrax spores, namely bentonite. And they said, oh my gosh, you've got three, and then it became four independent expert sources that tell us there's bentonite helping to weaponize this anthrax. And bentonite is Saddam Hussein's signature. It's a, it's a particular substance that only Iraq uses to weaponize its anthrax. So there you go. You've got the letters which seem to point to Al-Qaeda. You've got the bentonite pointing to Iraq. And there you have the double perpetrator. So did the bentonite thing hold water? The bentonite thing did not, <laughs> did not hold water. <laughs> right. It did hold not. On. This is just another story. It's another scenario. It's another fiction 
that was cooked up and that we were all supposed to buy. Yeah. Bentonite, by the way, it amuses me that it was described as in, in one of these ABC reports as the powerful additive. And you, you, you kind of want to tremble at, at this horrible bentonite. <laughs> it sounds like kryptonite with uh, Superman. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What it actually is is clay. And, you know, it's used in kitty litter, you know. <laughs> so it's, it's not a particularly scary thing. And, and there wasn't any in the anthrax. That's the point. There wasn't any. And ABC News had to back off pretty quickly and say, well, actually, it looks now as if maybe there isn't any bentonite. The whole story of the double perpetrator collapsed quite quickly. And your basic question was to me was, how do we get from foreign group to domestic individual? And I'm slowly struggling to get there. Once the idea that Iraq was involved fell apart, there was not a shred of evidence Iraq had anything to do with it. And finally, people started to admit that. Um, Al-Qaeda, without Iraq, how does Al-Qaeda fit in? Al-Qaeda couldn't have made this substance. Uh, there's no way. This was really refined anthrax force. So as soon as the Iraq hypothesis died, the Al-Qaeda hypothesis was twisting in the wind. It didn't make sense. And, and, and you say there was another mistake that was made and that they chose this thing called the Ames strain. Right. And that also didn't fit with Iraq. That's correct. I'm not sure why they chose the Ames strain. There are various hypotheses. But in any case, the anthrax used was a particular genetic strain of anthrax, which had first been isolated in Texas and which was used mainly in American labs, especially military labs. Mm. U.S. had shared it with a few allies, but there wasn't, a, there wasn't the slightest evidence that Iraq or al-Qaeda had ever gotten, gotten hold of the Ames strain. So here you have the Ames strain, which is common in, in the relevant you know, military labs in the United States as part of the U.S. bioweapons program. And then you've got it weaponized in this very sophisticated micro-encapsulation process with the addition of silicon. And that, too, is characteristic of the U.S. program. So by the end of October, there are people who are saying, you know what this looks like? This looks like something from our own, one of our own programs. Finally, the FBI sees it has no alternative but to admit that. And that's how the domestic individual becomes the top hypothesis. Because once you've admitted, which they had by the end of 2001, the White House, the FBI, Department of Homeland Security have all admitted by the end of 2001 that this anthrax doesn't come from any foreign Muslims. This comes from our own, you know, from the United States, from one of our own programs. Once you've admitted that, what are you going to do if your job is containing this disaster? You're going to try and blame it on the famous lone nut. Yeah. You're going to say, well, look, you know, it's an individual in some lab here. We just have to find him, him or her. And, you know, and we can never rule out such individuals. He's probably crazy. That's why we use the term lone nut. And, you know, it doesn't really tell anything about our system or our governmental this or that. We'll just find this individual, and then it'll be all over. You don't have to worry. So this, in my view, was clearly an attempt at damage control. That's what the domestic individual hypothesis was. 
because I, I don't think there's ever been any good reason to believe it was an individual that did this. And uh, as I say in the book, it's clear it was a group. You, you sort of paint in the book the impression there that the FBI was kind of thrashing around then to try and sort of find somebody to blame, basically, for this. And, the, and they seem to go for this guy, first of all, Stephen Hatfield. Yes. And, and then Bruce Ivins. I want to ask you about those two in just a second. But just one thing that comes to my mind here is that, you know, as this Iraq and Al-Qaeda thing sort of dropped out of the picture, were questions being asked about that at the time? I mean, was anybody saying, well, you know, why has this been dropped? Were people saying, was this due to faulty intelligence or something like that? I can't answer that in a very confident and comprehensive way, but I have been through hundreds and I suppose it's thousands of newspaper articles from that period because this is one of the main methods I use to figure out what people were thinking at the time. We do mm -hmm. have a record of uh, major newspapers. And it's, it's actually remarkable to me how few people asked the obvious questions. You know, you'd think there would be a big editorial in the New York Times or something, as far as I know there never was, saying something's deeply disturbing here. Mm. We've been led to believe that foreign Muslims carried out an attack with a weapon of mass destruction on the United States, including Congress. This is a huge claim. And now, suddenly, we're being told they didn't. Well, if they didn't, what were all those stories about? Who created the Bentonite story? Who wrote these darn letters claiming to be Al-Qaeda? Um, there's something deeply disturbing, and, and we yeah. should be very worried, and we should carry out a major investigation at the bottom of this. There's relatively little about that. People seem to assume, oh, well, you know, we made our best guess. I guess we were wrong, and on mm. to the next thing. It's, it's quite deeply disturbing, actually, just looking back at that and seeing that process go on. To think, well, is that going on today? Are we missing things as well, you know, in the, in the present situation? Exactly. And, of course, I think we are. And mm. if, you, if you end up spending years of your life, as I have, studying these fraudulent actions, whether it be 9-11 or anthrax or any of the others, and there's a whole string of them, then you do become extremely skeptical when you look at the mass media and what are they trying to get us to do now? I mean, in, in yeah. 2003, and actually for a couple of years before that, we were, you will remember, I'm sure, we were all told that there was an emergency, that what are we gonna do about Iraq? What are we gonna do about Iraq? And eventually, well, I guess we'll have to invade them. You look back at this now and you say, what was the emergency? And of course, some of us were saying that at the time. Uh, in fact, quite a large peace movement was saying it, but there was no emergency. Iraq hadn't done anything new. Iraq had destroyed its weapons of mass destruction years ago, and there had never been any evidence that they still had them and were trying to develop them. You know, they were a poor, impoverished country. They were going down the drain. They had suffered terribly from sanctions. There simply was no emergency. And yet we were led to believe by our media that there was and that we better invade. So now, of course, the same thing is happening about Syria and people are being beheaded. Oh, my God, what are we going to do? And so we better invade and we better start bombing Syria, supposedly in order to get ISIS. But I think many of us know that ISIS isn't the real target here. They want to unseat the Assad regime. Yes, memories do seem to be very short, don't they, in some cases? Absolutely. Yeah. Coming back to these two individuals then, so I, my understanding is that the FBI's first case was against this scientist called Stephen Hatfill, and that was unsuccessful, and he was uh, awarded substantial damages for harassment, I understand. But they had this second case against the scientist Bruce Ivins, and that was successful in the sense that the case was closed. But you, along with many others, of course, maintain that that case 
was really, really flimsy to the point of pretty much non-existent. So could you just give us some idea of how implausible that case was against Dr. Ivins? Uh, I will do my best. You're right in a sense that uh, the FBI was, at least in the short term, successful in uh, going after Ivins, meaning that they convinced a fair number of people and they felt sufficiently um, confident in their case that they closed the case. However, he was not convicted. He was never tried. He was never even formally charged. They were saying that they were about to charge him with the crime, and then he suddenly died. This is in 2008. Um, He apparently uh, took his own life through an overdose of Tylenol. Um, And, you know, friends who've looked into this more deeply than I have say that that appears to be true. He had emotional and mental problems. The FBI had put him under tremendous stress, you know, visiting at work, visiting him at home, staking out his home, talking to his children. Uh, He was under enormous pressure. He, he himself wrote a note to someone saying something like this, the state demands its blood sacrifice and it appears I am to be that sacrifice. So here's a man who, who is under great pressure, probably takes his own life. Because of that, he's not charged, he's not tried, he's not convicted. So the FBI then has a field day. I mean, they're happy. They say, oh, well, you know, the fact that he took his own life just shows his guilty conscience they write a document, which is, I don't remember, 90-some pages long, you can find it on the internet, in which the case against Ivans is made. And you have to remember how, how really outrageous this is. Uh, the man is dead, uh, and you're making a case against him, uh, a case on the most flimsy circumstantial evidence, slander, and all the rest of it. He has no chance to rebut this. He, you know, he had a lawyer, but the lawyer really has no function anymore because he's dead. This is one of the things, by the way, this is part of a common pattern that we find in fraudulent events. Uh, This is the Lee Harvey Oswald phenomenon. Remember that Oswald supposedly killed Kennedy and then just happened to be murdered in the presence of 70 Dallas police officers. Well, that meant, of course, that he would never be able to tell his story. He would never be tried. He would be convicted by, by slander, not by a legal process. And I believe this is a fairly common pattern in these things. So here we have Ivan's is dead. Wow. So we don't have to worry about being sued for $5 million, which is Hatfield was successful in his suit for, I forget, it was 5.1 or 5.3 or something million dollars. We don't have to worry because he's dead. So we'll call him the anthrax killer and we'll say the case is closed. And that's the official FBI position now. But I, and certainly not just me, but many people have been saying for years now, there's no way. You know, your, your evidence is hopelessly, hopelessly weak. What kind of uh, weaknesses were there in the evidence? Can you drag up a couple of things to give us an idea? Well, for example, the FBI claims that he um, had the capacity to make this product and that he had the requisite tools and equipment to make this product and presumably had some motivation to make this product, and so on. All of this is uh, is unsupported by the evidence. Uh, he, he did work with anthrax. He worked at the United States Army uh, Institute of, oh, I always forget what USAMRID stands for. USAMRID, United States Army Institute of Infectious Diseases, something like that. Um, in any case, it's a U.S. military lab. That's where Bruce Ivins worked. 
Was that um, at Fort Detrick? Yes, Fort Detrick, Maryland. Mm-hmm. He was a serious scientist. He had published a lot on anthrax, and he was developing an anthrax vaccine. He had cooperated with, and he, you know, he volunteered to help the FBI in, in uh, early years of this to try and figure out who had done this. Anyway, the point is, he, he didn't work with the kind of anthrax that was sent, especially the anthrax sent to the senators. He worked with it in a liquid form. Um, they got a highly refined, dried form of anthrax. Mm. There's no evidence he knew how to do that. There's no evidence that he had the equipment to produce this uh, product, which was not merely uh, refined and dry, but was also, as I've said before, had undergone this micro-encapsulation process tin added and silicon. There's no evidence that Ivans could have done that or that he had the equipment to do that. So from a straight scientific point of view, this is very far-fetched. And by the way, colleagues of his, a former boss of his, have come out and said this. They've also said, where do you think he made it? Do you really think he made it in his lab at Fort Detrick? I mean, we would have noticed And furthermore, uh, it would have taken him like 10,000 hours, not a couple of dozen hours that you're claiming. Yeah, there was that, uh, I think, very good documentary by CBC that I saw. Uh, I looked at it again just recently, actually, called Anthrax War. Uh And uh, there was a former deputy commander at Fort Detrick, a man called something like Richard Spurzel. And uh, he said in that documentary, he said, well, no, 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 it's far too sophisticated for one man to produce. Uh, It couldn't even have been done at Fort Detrick. That's what he said. Right. Fort Detrick was badly equipped to produce this product. Um, The two most likely suspects are laboratories at either Battelle Memorial Institute, uh, which does a tremendous amount of work for the U.S. intelligence agency, which specializes in aerosols and so on. And uh, the other would be the Dugway Proving Ground. Uh, Dugway also works for the U.S. military. Um, It's part of the military industrial complex. And it's also possible that Dugway and Battelle work together on this. And that would have had nothing to do with Ivan's. Ivan's had nothing to do with them. He didn't have access to their equipment. It's looking increasingly over the years, and I refer to a number of quite technical articles on the anthrax spores used in the attacks. It's looking increasingly as if this product was taken from the U.S. bioweapons program. It was probably taken from stores that already existed. It wasn't created specially for the anthrax attacks. And this was most likely anthrax that was kept either at Dugway or Battelle. So we seem to have the situation, looking at the, the logic of your argument here, that the uh, that, you know the two quadrants of the foreign group, the foreign individual, seem to be pretty much unlikely. And this going after a domestic individual doesn't seem to be going anywhere, seems to leave us with the domestic group. Mm-hmm. And you know a major way in which you go about pinning down this group as very probably including U.S. establishment insiders is your exploration of the many warnings about anthrax attacks from official sources and, and in the media, um, and indeed a quite widespread taking of Cipro. Is that how you pronounce it? Yes, I guess so. Yeah. And that was in the days leading up to the actual attacks themselves. And I mean, I would have thought there, you know, there should have been no apparent foreknowledge of this. Um, So could you tell us something about these indications of possible foreknowledge and what you think this actually tells us? Yes, this is another thing to look for when you're looking for a fraudulent event. Um, You look to see if there's foreknowledge, if there's advanced knowledge that looks really fishy. Because if there is, it may be that it comes from the perpetrators, that their plans 
uh, either leaked out inadvertently or in some cases were deliberately leaked out for various reasons. And the anthrax attacks are good, a good example of this. So the way I often start off on this is to say we would not be surprised if we were to discover that there was a run on this particular drug, Cipro, or ciprofloxacin, which is an antibiotic, and it was the antibiotic of choice at the time to treat anthrax. We would not be surprised to find that a lot of people were running out and buying Cipro after it was revealed that Robert Stevens had anthrax, that he had the disease, and especially after he died on October 5th. So if we were looking at a chart of you know how many people were buying Cipro, we would not be surprised to see that the sales went way up after his death. And in fact, they did go way up. So far, so good. One thing, though, that we, we would be surprised to find is that they started going up before his death. A couple of weeks before he was diagnosed, in fact, as having anthrax, which is to say mid-September, when nobody is supposed to have known that anthrax was in play. Okay, there were some letters in the mails, but nobody had been diagnosed as having anthrax. At that point, the run on Cipro begins. And it reached quite large uh, proportions to the point where it's, it was being talked about in the New York Times. It was called an anthrax scare. There were druggists being quoted as saying, I can't keep it in stock. <laughs> People are worried about anthrax. This is happening before there is any public knowledge or any legitimate public knowledge about anthrax. So you have this strange situation where somebody puts anthrax in the mail and then there's an anthrax scare, and then the anthrax put in the mail is discovered. Well, hello, folks, something looks wrong here. So then we look more deeply, and we find, for example, that George W. Bush, President of the United States, and Richard Cheney, Vice President of the United States, were put on Cipro. They started a course of Cipro on 9-11 itself. And you think, well, that seems a little odd. But then somebody comes back to you and they say, well, no, no, this is protocol. After all, there's a major terrorist attack, could be followed up with a bioweapons attack. So you put your chief executive officers, you put them on Cipro. Now, if someone said, to that, said that to me, I would say, okay, I guess so. I haven't seen the written protocol, but it makes sense to me. But here's where it starts to fall apart. It starts to fall apart when we have all these other people going on Cipro as well. So, for example, we have a Washington Post journalist by the name of Richard Cohen, who says in, you know, and he's in print as saying this years later, oh, I was told in a roundabout way, I was given a tip by a government official, and I was told that I should procure Cipro. Now, he says this happened shortly after 9-11, and, and he said this happened well before most people had even heard of Cipro. So when we try and figure out what period he's talking about, it has to be between 9-11 and, let's say, September 25th. But because by that time, everybody knows about it. It's being reported in the New York Times. So at some point in mid-September, Richard Cohen, journalist, is given a tip. Now, what on earth does this mean? By a government official that he should start taking the antibiotic required for anthrax. 
And so we've got all these things happening. We've got the president, the vice president, we've got Cohen, we've got all kinds of other people talking about it. We've got druggists, there's a run on it. And at this point, we have to say this is looking very fishy indeed. Absolutely. So I mean, could you say something like, uh, well, perhaps they had this sort of intelligence that there might have been some possibility that there would be unsophisticated anthrax at least coming from Al-Qaeda and they didn't want to alarm the population. So they just sort of told certain people. <laughs> Well, yes, you could say that, uh, and I do explore that option in the book, uh, but I don't think it's true. And part of the reason is that this was not good intelligence, because Iraq, in fact, had destroyed its stocks of anthrax years ago, and al-Qaeda never had any, as far as we know. So the idea that these foreign Muslims were going to spread anthrax in the United States shortly after the 9-11 attacks is not good intelligence, and in my view, it's not even faulty intelligence. It's fraudulent intelligence. I think that the U.S. intelligence were, were perfectly aware that Iraq and al-Qaeda didn't have it and had no motivation anyway. Certainly, Iraq didn't have any motivation. So was there intelligence? Well, it depends what you mean by intelligence. There was fraudulent intelligence. There were fictional stories being given to people, yes, these fictional stories began before 9-11, they continued after 9-11, and they had to do with, you know, Al-Qaeda and Iraq as possibly being about to carry out an anthrax attack. So in that sense, you could say people were taking Cipro because they heard these stories, but the point is the stories were deliberately false stories, they were fictions. And as part of this kind of uh, foreknowledge background to all of this, you mentioned something called Dark Winter, a project of the American government that I believe was a simulation of an anthrax attack. That was obviously before these attacks took place. Could you tell us something about Dark Winter? Yes, Dark Winter was a simulation. You could call it a war game if you like. And they're, they're carrying out these, I mean, governments carry these out all the time. So there's nothing particularly suspect about it from the outset. Um, they were wargaming bioweapons attack on the United States. Not anthrax, actually, but smallpox. Uh -huh. uh, they do mention anthrax as a possibility during the simulation, but the emphasis is on smallpox. So this dark winter exercise takes place in June of 2001. In other words, several months before the actual anthrax attacks. The reason it's, it's interesting is because of the parallels between this exercise and what then unfolds several months later. And I've discussed, I believe, 10 parallels in the book. But I suppose the single most interesting one is that as the exercise unfolds, that is dark winter, this simulation, it becomes clear that, gee whiz, bin Laden may be involved. And then people say, oh, gee, but he may have a state sponsor. And finally, by the end of the exercise, it has become clear that the smallpox attacks was carried out by a terrorist group based in Afghanistan. In other words, something like Al-Qaeda. And the actual smallpox was provided to them by, guess who? Iraq. So, in other words, the same double perpetrator that later gets blamed for the real anthrax attacks is already being framed in this smallpox simulation, even though it already is silly and, and it already doesn't make sense in June 2001. It's already known, in other words, that Iraq does not have the capacity to provide this material. But already they're framing Iraq. They're setting things up for this. 
And there are other, and so there are all kinds of other parallels that I mentioned. For example, that in the simulation in June, you you have this uh, need to curtail the civil rights of Americans, and it's talked about very overtly. Okay, I guess we'll have to suspend habeas corpus and and so on and so forth. And that's exactly what happens a few months later with the Patriot Act curbing the civil rights of Americans. We also have, during the simulation, the U.S. population getting angry about these foreign Muslims, and so they start attacking Muslims in the streets. That happens. It happens especially after 9-11, but also the anthrax attacks help to cement this notion of the evil foreign Muslims. And you have a whole range of actual attacks happening in the United States in the fall, including murder. I mean, it's a really major wave of recrimination against anybody who looks like they might be Muslim. This is already prefigured in June. So you have all these things. You have a high state official being targeted, coming down with smallpox in the simulation. And then later you have two senators being targeted. You have smallpox being sent to the media, envelopes being sent to the media. It's exactly the way the anthrax attacks begin. So you see the point. It's almost as if you have a group practicing and then doing the real thing a few months later. Yeah, so it seems to be a kind of template, it looks like that anyway, for what actually did happen. But um, can you locate any individuals at all who were involved with Dark Winter who then sort of float to the surface with respect to the anthrax scene? (laughs) Yes, I like the uh, image of them. Floating to the surface. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) No, there are indeed people who float to the surface. Uh, Judith Miller plays the part of a reporter in the Dark Winter simulation, and of course she was a reporter. She was uh, a major journalist for the New York Times, and uh, at the time of the Dark Winter simulation was completing a book called Germs, in which uh, Iraq especially would be called the great the great fear. This Iraq is the one we have to be afraid of in terms of bioweapons. And also she she and her co-authors say in the book, you know, they may of course use an intermediary, a group like Al Qaeda to help them. So this is this is the same Judith Miller. She shows up in the simulation. Her book comes out in October, just as the anthrax attacks are happening. October 12th, she herself receives a threat letter at the New York Times. Turns out it has fake powder in it, but it allows her to write, you know, an article and to help promote sales of her book and, and to help, you know, get every Iraq and everybody's in the crosshairs. So Judith Miller is, is a participant, in other words, in both the simulation in June and in the real attacks in October. Then we have James James Woolsey, um, former head of the CIA. He's he's in the simulation. He also becomes a participant during the anthrax attacks. He's very vocal in making sure Iraq's name is brought up all the time. Goes after Iraq, thinks Iraq was involved in both 9-11 and the anthrax attacks. So this becomes one of his main functions in the real world, not just the simulation. And we have this strange character, Jerome Hauer, who is in the simulation, He's a key figure in the 9-11 attacks, and then he becomes involved in the anthrax thing because he's a bioweapons expert. Deeply fishy character, in my view. We could talk more about him, but let's just say he's a dark player in, in both the simulation and the reality. And when we look at all the parallels between the simulation and reality, we may be led to ask the question, which I just briefly ask in the book. I later I gave a paper on this at an academic conference, and that is really, where's the line between simulation and reality? 
Is it a matter of a simulation is done in June and, and reality happens in the fall? Or is the thing that happened in the fall stage two of the simulation? Could it be thought of that way? Admittedly, a lethal simulation, but nonetheless, uh, something that has many of the features of a simulation, which is to say it's, it's fiction, it's limited in its scope, it's got highly defined rules, mm. and so on. And uh, you've been talking about these various personnel coincidences in inverted commas that uh, may or may not have inverted commas around them. Um, and certainly the hijacker connection that you bring up in the book is absolutely full of these coincidences. Um, and this really talks about one of the other contentions of your book, which is point C in your chapter one list. And that's the people who were behind the anthrax attacks, you say, were linked to or indeed identical with the perpetrators of the 9-11 attacks. And it's in Chapter 7 that you really pinpoint this, where you discuss the alleged 9-11 hijackers and their really very surprising connections to this anthrax affair, which was complete news to me. A very, very eye-opening chapter indeed. So could you tell us how some of these alleged 9-11 hijackers turn out to be connected to this anthrax narrative? I will do my best. This is uh, an intricate issue, and it's sometimes difficult to explain in an interview. But let me start off by saying that when the anthrax attacks became public knowledge in October of 2001, it was a very common belief that the U.S. had been subjected to what we might call a one-two punch, where you, you know, so number one, the first punch is 9-11 attacks, and then before people really have a chance to recover, punch two comes in, and that's the anthrax attacks. And that was pretty widely assumed to be true. Now, once the anthrax narrative fell apart and it became clear, which it did pretty quickly, that this wasn't foreign Muslims. This was coming from within the U.S. bioweapons program itself, right? Yep. The one-two punch story also fell apart. That is, it actually became swept down the memory hole. The FBI now was spending a lot of energy to say that there's no connection between 9-11 was carried out by real Muslims who killed Americans. The attacks which began a week later were carried out by fake Muslims or a fake Muslim, fraudulent Muslims, who then wanted to kill Americans. But they had nothing to do with each other. So what my book is really trying to do, this is not the only thing, but one of the main things, is to say the original idea was correct. It was a one-two punch. They are connected. We need to see that. But they are connected in the way that we were originally told. Mm. It wasn't a one-two punch by foreign Muslims. It was a one-two punch by people within the United States. This what They were both inside jobs. And we can, we can even say that we should talk about the 9-11 anthrax attacks, the 9-11 anthrax operation. That's the way I would like to call it, that they were two parts of the same operation. Now, I know that's not quite what you asked, but I wanted to make that clear because that's one of the main themes of my book. Now, in terms of how we get there and why we conclude that, uh, as you say, we find, perhaps to our surprise, that the famous 19 hijackers who supposedly hijacked planes on 9-11 and flew them into this and that building are involved in the anthrax story. And this was a surprise to me as well. When I first began researching the anthrax attacks in 2010, I had somehow missed that. <laughs> but that's a really important point, of course. 
Um, so, I mean, the, the, the connections are, are many, actually, but the most obvious one, I suppose, is that in Florida, where about 15 out of 19 of the hijackers lived at one point, they lived there for quite a while, and they didn't just hang out there, they, you know, did flying lessons and various things there. These guys were, some of them, directly connected, or pretty directly connected, to the first anthrax death. For example, the woman who was the real estate agent of Robert Stevens, the first person to die of anthrax, was also the real estate agent of two of the 19 hijackers, you know, which is kind of weird. Hamza al-Gamdi and Marwan al-Shehi. Marwan al-Shehi, by the way, uh, one of the guys she was a real estate agent for, she knew him. I mean, it wasn't just that they passed in the hall. She said, oh, yeah, I remember them really well. Marwan would phone me and laugh, and then he, he wanted me to drive them around town, and I did that, and, you know, I hung out with them. And they, so, I mean, he, she remembered very clearly. So here she is finding two apartments for 19 hijacker guys, and each apartment is then occupied by two of the 19 hijackers. So at this point, we've got four hijackers involved. And at one point, the St. Petersburg Times says that U.S. intelligence has now linked nine of the hijackers to a particular apartment in Florida, which this woman, Gloria Irish, found for them. So Gloria Irish is connected to the hijackers, and Gloria Irish is also connected to Robert Stevens. In fact, her husband, Mike Irish, is the editor of the uh, newspaper that Stevens works for. She and her husband had known Stevens for years. Mm. So what does this mean? So Robert Stevens is the first guy to be sent uh, an anthrax letter, is that right? Well, he's not necessarily the first one to be sent it, oh. but he's the first one whose disease is diagnosed as anthrax. Uh-huh. He's diagnosed on October 3rd. He dies on October 5th. And the building in which he works... Uh, American Media Incorporated, that building is contaminated with anthrax. He he works as a photo editor for a publication called The Sun. And the uh, editor of The Sun is Mike Irish, whose wife, you know, is the real estate agent. So in other words, there's a connection. Now, if this was the only connection, I suppose we might say, well, gee, coincidences happen. But it isn't. It isn't. We find a variety of connections between the 9-11 hijackers and anthrax, including the fact that the lead, so-called head of the hijackers, Mohammed Atta, is going around shortly before 9-11 trying to get a crop duster plane, you know, <laughs> which he can... Yes, I, 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 do, I do want to ask you about that in a moment, actually, because that's another incredible thing. But, you know, I, I don't want to take away from the probability, the improbability of what you've just been talking about, because, you know, we now know that those uh, alleged hijackers wouldn't have been sending the, the anthrax out from everything that you've said. And yet we have this guy who's closely linked into that whole situation right. there, this Robert Stevens, receives this anthrax letter. That's incredible out of the you know, 350 million uh, Americans who could have been targeted with this. How come he ends up being targeted? That is absolutely astonishing. It is. And I don't think it's coincidence. And uh, so then if it's not coincidence, then we're left saying, well, gee, the 19 hijackers are somehow connected well, not somehow, they're quite closely connected to the anthrax attacks, and there's plenty of evidence that they are connected. So then we, we've got to decide which direction to go with this. We can say, well, the hijackers were obviously authentic. After all, they carried out 9-11 attacks. So maybe the anthrax attacks have to be authentic after all. That's one direction we could go. The other direction, which is what I believe the evidence 
overwhelmingly suggests is that the anthrax attacks were fraudulent, they came from within the U.S., and if the hijackers are connected, then the hijackers are fraudulent, and the 9-11 attacks are fraudulent. That's the direction that I think we are forced to go in. So you're, you're saying, presumably then, that the whole thing was set up so that uh, the FBI would make a connection between Stevens and the hijackers and then say that there was therefore a link with al-Qaeda and sort of support this whole story, but that the whole thing was really manufactured. Exactly. And this is the part that people sometimes find confusing. So, for example, if you look in the dark winter simulation I mentioned in June of 2001, you find that you know, as the simulation goes on, people are discovering this and they're discovering that. Oh, gee, maybe Bin Laden's involved. Oh, gee, maybe Iraq's involved. And, and the perpetrators become clear, right, during over time. Mm. Exactly the same thing, I believe, was designed to happen in the actual attacks in the fall. And you can see it in the media. So somebody will say, gee, these anthrax letters are coming from the parts of the country where the hijackers were active, like Florida. And then the next day, someone will say, wow, it's not just that. There's this glory Irish person involved. And then someone says, well, yeah, in Iraq, after all, Mohammed Atta went to and talked to an Iraqi diplomat. And all these little leads are being discovered. And I believe the leads are being discovered because they were planted there and we were supposed to all discover them. And we were supposed to come to the conclusion throughout the fall of 2001 that these anthrax attacks were an attack on the United States using a weapon of mass destruction carried out by al-Qaeda and Iraq. And that obviously would justify invading Afghanistan and Iraq. And now we're left with the situation where we're supposed to believe that these alleged 9-11 hijackers had nothing to do with it. But in fact, it was a Bruce Ivans who sent this, and it just happened to be that he sent it to somebody who was closely connected with these hijackers. Quite, quite extra That's extraordinary, right. extraordinary. That's right. That's right. The FBI today doesn't want to talk about the hijackers in connection with the anthrax. Uh, to the extent that they have an official position, it is that there was nothing but coincidence. <laughs> Um, and and I, I hope I've made the case strongly in the book that that's extraordinarily unlikely. You have indeed. And of course, you backed it also up with what you were just about to say about Mohammed Atta as well, which is, well, almost equally extraordinary. So let me uh, not stand in your way of telling us about that as well. Right. Well, this is a story that was mentioned in the press shortly after 9-11. It was mentioned in its original form before the anthrax attacks had become public although the long form of the story didn't come out until 2002. Anyway, here's the story, basically, in the long form, as recorded by ABC News. Mohammed Atta, the so-called ringleader of the 19 hijackers, has just come to the United States from Hamburg in Germany, where, uh, while in Hamburg, he's supposedly being followed by U.S. intelligence and is seen purchasing chemicals, which he may then use in that to carry out biological or chemical uh, warfare attacks in the United States. So he leaves Hamburg after doing all that fishy stuff, comes to the United States, and apparently decides, well, now I need a delivery vehicle. Uh, you know, we can manufacture anthrax, um, or we can have it supplied to us. That's, that's going to happen. But how are we going to kill a lot of people? Well, the ideal way, apparently, would be to get a crop duster plane. It's one of these little planes that flies over the fields and disperses 
substances, right? It could be in, in pesticides or whatever. Um, if we could get one of those planes with all the little nozzles and stuff and put our, let's say, liquefied uh, anthrax or maybe even dry form loaded on the plane, imagine how many people we could kill forming this vast aerosol. That appears to be his thought because he shows up at the uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture loan office in Florida and talks to a loan officer by the name of Janelle Bryant. So this is all supposedly happening um, in the spring of 2001. That's what Janelle Bryant uh, tells ABC News. Um, and he says to her, well, you know, I've come here, you know, I'm originally from uh, Egypt, but I, I've come to the United States via Afghanistan. My dream is to fly planes. I'd like to dust American crops. <laughs> and I... To that end, I would like a, a loan because that's what you do. You give out loans, mm. you know, for agricultural mm. purposes. This should fit. I want to make a special kind of crop duster. I don't want one of those little planes, you know, you have to keep landing and, and reloading. I want a biggie with a huge tank. <laughs> and I can do all, all the spraying I need, you know, in one go. And the, the story goes from one ridiculous assertion to another. Uh, Bryant says to him fairly early on, well, I'm sorry, but you're not an American citizen, so you're not actually eligible for this. And he becomes agitated, uh, you know, and, and says, well, you know, why, who's to say I couldn't just go over and cut your throat and then take the money, you know, the $650,000 that I want, uh, take it from the safe. You know, you're telling me even if, you know, even if I were a citizen, I would have to fill out all these forms and make an application. I don't want to go through all that. I'll just I could cut your throat. Well, and of course, she says, oh, I'm, you know, that doesn't scare me. I know karate. <laughs> I mean, really, the whole story is silly, but it gets worse. He then notices on her wall a photograph of Washington, D.C. from the air. And he's excited. He says, oh, I've never seen a better view, you know, of Washington from the air. That, that's really great. I would, like, I would like to have that. He begins throwing cash on her desk to buy this. He points out the Pentagon. He, you know, at some point in the conversation, he talks about how would you like it if people came to your country and destroyed your buildings and your monuments. He goes on to, to say he'd like to visit the World Trade Center. He tells Janelle Bryant, do you know what the security is like there? I'd really like to get in and check it out. <laughs> he tells her that uh, he mentions Al-Qaeda. He says there's a wonderful man in the world you may not have heard of called Osama bin Laden. Someday he'll be, <laughs> he'll be very well known. You know, he implies that he's associated with bin Laden. And this, this kind of ridiculous conversation, this is reported by Brian Ross of ABC News in detail in 2002. The story is given in short form, very short form, uh, shortly after 9-11. And we are then supposed to believe that this is Muhammad Atta, the chief hijacker, the ringleader of the hijackers, the man who flew a plane into the North Tower of the World Trade Center in 9-11. Here he is trying to buy a plane in order to carry out a biological attack on the United States. So this is one among many scenarios, false stories, obvious fictions that were told to help set the story, set, set the stage for us blaming Iraq and Al-Qaeda. So he goes about his secret mission by, well, he would be going about his secret mission by alerting everybody to what it's about and, and who he is. It's incredible. Exactly. 
Exactly. And as I point out in the, in the, in the book, that's not the only absurd uh, uh, Muhammad Atta story. There's a whole cycle of stories. You know, Muhammad Atta is bitten by a dog. Uh, Muhammad Atta leaves his plane on the runway. Muhammad Atta is pulled over for speeding and has a, a, an arrest warrant issued when he refuses to show up in court. Uh, Muhammad Atta threatens somebody in a drugstore and scares somebody, you know, on and on. I mean, it's absurd. If this man was actually the ringleader who carried out one of the most lethal and sophisticated criminal operations in U.S. history, there's no way he's going to be going around laying a trail like this, which is exactly what these 19 hijackers mm. do. Well, uh, we are getting towards the end of our time here. And uh, obviously, in order to get a, a full picture of how this all hangs together, I think people obviously need to read the book. And I do highly recommend that people do get a copy of that book and read it. It's, uh, as I said before, it's very easy to read, actually, because you've gone to a lot of effort to make it easily understandable from one step to the next. But before we do actually close, I'd like to ask you, finally, if you would just sort of comment on the, the legacy of these attacks. And I, I have in mind here the way that they've played their part really in shifting us away from the cold war towards this war on terror paradigm that we're in now and uh, you know all that means for war across the globe and of course surveillance at home so how important do you see these attacks as bringing about that shift from the cold war to this new war on terror well as i say i see the attacks on the u.s or the attacks perhaps i should say in the u.s that took place in the fall of 2001 as forming one operation. So rather than separate 9-11 and anthrax, I'd say the 9-11 anthrax operation was crucial in uh, if not creating the global war on terror, we can argue it was already in place, at least creating a huge upsurge in this global war on terror. Now, if we look at uh, U.S. military spending and indeed global military spending after the end of the Cold War, we find that it was indeed dropping uh, we may not have gotten the so-called peace dividend that we wanted, but it was going down. And uh, the attacks in the fall of 2001 changed all that, mm. both in the U.S. and in the world more generally, although, of course, they're closely connected. The U.S. at that time uh, took up about 50% of the world's military spending. So obviously, if it goes up in the U.S., it's automatically going to go up in the world as a whole. Uh, but it went way up. I mean, just a, another huge peak. You know, if you look, you see World War II was a peak, the Korean War was a peak, the Vietnam War was a peak, the late Cold War was a peak, and now we've got the latest peak, and it is the so-called global war on terror. Military-industrial complex is happy. U.S. gets to control as much of the oil production as it can in the world during this dramatically important phase of world history when we are losing our energy resources. And when there appears to be an effort to, you know, on the, on the part of the sole remaining superpower to control the last drops of oil, this is a huge historic thing that's happening here. Who cares? These guys seem to say, who cares how many hundred thousand people, how many millions of people die? We are going to use the system we know, which is war. It's called war. We're going to use it to solve the problems of oil scarcity, energy scarcity more generally, we're going to use it because that's what we're good at. We're really good at war. And, of course, this is so dangerous for humanity. War is not a sustainable solution. It's not a humane solution. And it's certainly not so a solution for humanity as a whole. You cannot solve the problem 
of uh, the world's rapidly disappearing energy sources through this brutal system. You can put off the day of reckoning, but you cannot solve it. And that's where we are right now. And that's why some of us feel we must unmask these perpetrators if we can, so that the world may begin in a more enlightened and humane way to cooperate to solve the genuine environmental problems we face. And I think what's so particularly worrying about this phase at the moment is that this war on terror is painted as being an eternal war, really. I mean, people talk about it as being, you know, it's not going to be won in this generation. It's going to take generations, as if the military-industrial complex has actually generated something that is like in perpetual motion. I think that's what they are trying to create. They are trying to create what you might call a war machine, meaning a machine that keeps war going, no matter what people may think. And I think this so-called ISIS threat is just the latest in a whole series of threats that they intend to keep creating and promoting as long as necessary. And we need Mm. to start taking the mask off. And do you feel that the clamping down at home with the surveillance state and the, the loss of freedoms is part of that picture as well, that as people become more aware of what's going on, then people's consciences have to be stepped on in, to allow this war to continue? Absolutely. And I try to make that point, however succinctly in the book, by saying that the clamping down on civil rights and the promotion of wars abroad have often in history been two aspects of the same move. When you want to mobilize people for war, you get them to think the same, you force them if necessary to think the same as the war leaders, you begin clamping down on all forms of dissent. We've seen this throughout history. And the global war on terror, therefore, if it's going to be successfully kept going by these people, involves both the creation of outward war triggers like ISIS, pretexts for war, and at the same time an inward movement. And of course, in the UK, this is very strong too. And the London bombings helped to create this. And that is you have to make the police into kind of paramilitary forces. You have to decrease people's sense that they have civil rights that are inviolable. And you have to be willing to control the population. And that's what we're seeing, unfortunately. Yes, indeed. And I think this has come out very starkly just very recently with David Cameron's speech there at the UN, where he actually did talk about the people who say 9-11 was a Jewish plot, because that's very carefully worded, right. uh, that 7-7 was staged, or that the West has a war on Islam. You know, these people are now, anybody who says things like that, these people are extremists and, uh, you know, part of the narrative that is somehow connected to ISIS and, and needs to be combated. And, you know, I think a lot of people have thought just how appalling that statement was but it's part i mean i don't know to what extent david cameron realizes what he's doing there but you know he's mouthing words presumably that have been given to him by somebody else and it seems to be all part of this dynamic that you've just been talking about i think you're absolutely right Uh, i don't know who wrote his speech but i think the move comes from uh, very dark and very powerful forces Mm. and we have to remember that they've shown their hand Uh, When the prime minister gets up in the UN and somehow manages to weave together this brutal, terrifying force that beheads people, manages to, through complete propaganda and nonsense, tie them to people like us who are raising questions about, you know, criminal acts that took place in our countries. We're all somehow in the same category. They're really showing where they're going there. And I think we need to react to that. 
absolutely. Very, very frightening times, actually. But uh, we shouldn't be frightened. Indeed, we should continue to go on talking about these things and questioning these things, because otherwise, in a sense, they've won. So, Dr. McQueen, thank you ever so much indeed for being with us. And as I say, your book is a must read. I guess people can get it through Amazon, but can it be purchased through the publisher in some way? Yes, the, the most direct route at the moment is to uh, look up Clarity Press uh, on the internet. That's the publisher. And you'll find the book advertised there. If you click on, you'll get a web page which allows you to order the book directly from there. Great. And obviously, there is, as I said before, so much more detail in that book than we can possibly cover in an interview like this. But uh, do go get a copy. It's an important book. It's not a long book. You've written it to be understood, easily followed. And I think it makes its case extremely persuasively. And I think it's a major contribution to uh, this area of study and including uh, 9-11 studies. So thank you very much indeed, Dr. McQueen, for writing it and for setting this time aside to be with us on The Mind Renewed. Thank you, Julian. I appreciate uh, you giving me this opportunity. It's a pleasure. Thank you ever so much for coming on. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.